Welcome to Social Design Insights, the weekly podcast which brings you the leading voices of the social design movement. I am your co-host Emiliano Gandolfi and I'm here today as usual with my co-host Eric Kessel. Hey guys, uh, great to join you for another week. So we're here today uh, with uh, a second interview, was well, the third episode, but a second interview on the topic what can design do to promote peace. So do you think we are at war in New York City, uh, Eric? <laughs> no, I don't think that was the inspiration. Uh, when Emiliano and I were, were planning this out, um, you know, we wanted to look at peace from all angles. We wanted to understand, you know, the peace that arrives through community and thinking about, you know, Dr. King's famous words about peace is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of justice. Uh, looking at groups that are actually creating that reality in our day to day streets every day, even in the absence of outright conflict or war. And we're going to be speaking today with Isela Ramirez, which is the senior project manager of Hester Street Collaborative in New York City. Hester Street has been really working in trying to empower people through bringing them an understanding and an access to urban planning, to design and to development. So somehow they are mediators and uh, in this role, they're really helping citizens get a hold on, on what are the challenges that they're facing and helping them to get accessibility to uh, affordable housing, to public spaces, and in general to the larger field of planning, which is something that usually is really quite inaccessible to citizens. It would be an oversimplification to, to call their work anti-gentrification, but there's certainly strong elements of that. In neighborhoods in New York City and, and kind of across the globe, there are communities that are, have a rich historical and cultural history in a particular place. And then there's a planning process, which is a legislative government process that is sometimes often structured to support moneyed interests the interest of development, development that often displaces these communities. So basically what Hester Street does um, is it acts as a negotiator and mobilizes that community power and involves them in this planning process so that development takes place more equitably. And I think it's really interesting in the interview when um, Isella talks about really how local knowledge brings a different perspective. So sometimes authorities have the right idea, they want to do the right thing, but in fact they don't have a, an entry point to that specific knowledge of what are the local resources, of what are the local possibilities, and what are the local issues. So sometimes even if you have a good intention, uh, you end up doing the wrong thing. So. A kind of non-profit uh, like Hester Street Collaborative really brings in uh, the voice of the people and tries to find a common ground. And I think that, you know, finding a common ground is the best ingredient to uh, have, you know, a more just environment. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, they're kind of like peacemakers, right? I mean, they're sort of navigating that middle space um, and making sure that the interests are, are protected of, of residents in that community. So we're great admirers of the work. I think Zella uh, does a great job of, of painting the picture for us. Um, do you want to listen to the interview? Sure, let's listen to the interview. Zella, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. It's great to have you here, and, and we're eager to learn more about Hester Street and how you all got started and how it is you do what you do. To it, could, could you take us back to kind of the origins of Hester Street? We know that it kind of grew out of a private architectural practice. And when that practice uh, relocated to the Lower East Side, there became these questions about, you know, how design could become a part of that 
community. How did the, the concept, the organization, and the practice of Hester Street originally get started? Sure. And hi, everyone. Uh, happy to be here. So you're absolutely correct that Hester Street has a, a pretty unique beginning uh, for a nonprofit in that it wasn't necessarily folks from a community working together to create something new and kind of taking those steps, but rather it was uh, the interest of a young woman working in an architecture firm and thinking about how to have a more meaningful impact in the place where their firm was located. So certainly outside of the usual relationship that an architect has with their client looking you know, traditionally at a particular building in a particular site, kind of almost in a vacuum. And so she took a broader approach into, you know, what it means to be located in a particular community, in a particular neighborhood, and how can one, whether an individual or an institution or in, in this, in, in her idea, right, a nonprofit um, offer similar or related services to a community that is different from a wealthy client who has the monies to contract uh, with an architecture firm. Um, and so she began by doing some local, primarily public space related projects here in the Lower East Side. And that, you know, kind of grew tremendously um, and has grown even, even more so in the last couple of years after Annie's departure. But since then, we've been working in the Lower East Side and outside of it with primarily uh, community-based organizations, a lot of them who are member-based, right? So this means that they are organizing for power shifts in and outside of their neighborhoods and who know how to organize well, know how to win campaigns, but maybe don't have the technical skills to dream up of what can happen with an empty lot or how to, you know, kind of prove their their case to elected officials or to within, you know, planning processes. Um, and so that's where we partner with them to uh, provide them with the technical uh, support because what we don't bring is the expertise of and the local knowledge of that community. Um, and I think that's what we value the most of the, you know, within these partnerships with local community organizations. You're working, you, at least you started working in a city like New York that is probably one of the most culturally diverse and uh, dense uh, cities in the world, which makes it a terrific city and exciting city to live in, but it also makes it a, a very challenging city, uh, especially in terms of the housing market that is uh, extremely aggressive and uh, the prices that make it really prohibitive sometimes to afford uh, even for a city to have a public space or to really... Um, have uh, places that are uh, developed through community and not just gentrified. In, in your specific experience in New York City, how do you work with these communities in, in bringing design as a, a tool for them, uh, for their empowerment? It's a constant challenge. I mean, I think housing in particular <laughs> and, and owning property and, a, a, and having a building with your name on it, um, with your organization's ownership it is extremely difficult. I can point to a couple of examples, but really I'll, I'll zoom into a project that we have ongoing right now with Make the Road New York, which is a social justice organization um, in New York State. You know, have 
thousands of members across um, New York City and in, in Long Island, Staten Island, um, and they um, are primarily leasing spaces. And so they came to us, um, again, having already worked with them on other um, on other campaigns, on other, um, you know, kind of community planning processes. Um, they came to us with an interest in owning space in, um, in Queens. We then take the role of a typical or traditional kind of uh, real estate developer and, and, you know, kind of infuse it with democracy and social justice. And what that means is that we are not looking to make a buck, right, but rather we are offering project management um, assistance and filling a, a role to guide um, a nonprofit that, again, does what they do really well, but how to convert an empty space, own that space, right? Look for it, own it, you know, work with the um, with an architect and with finally a, a construction contractor to realize their vision um, is something that we've been doing with them. And so all of the, you know, sometimes infuriating uh, phone calls and forms that need to get filled to get the, the right loans and the right assistance from the right financial institutions as well as from from the city and also again uh, working to select architects that make sense that have a vision that fits in with the organization's own you know kind of outlook and mission that that fits their their mission well is something that we've been working on and taking them through this interview process as well as you know kind of that to me is all the the logistical pieces but I think the most important piece is then making sure that we're engaging their members as well as their staff, right? The folks that will use this space most often. How, you know, do the two different folks here, right? The folks that um, provide the services or are organizing residents or saying hello as people walk in and offering them coffee or, you know, asking them to, you know, fill out a form. How is it that they occupy the space versus how is it the folks that are coming from the neighborhood occupying the space? What is it they feel in the spaces now? What are you know what are the challenges of the of this space, and what is it that they want to see in the new space? Um, and feeding all of this information, one to review to the leadership of the organization, but then also making sure that the architects understand that vision, respect it, and that we hold them to a price point that makes sense to that organization. Again, this is not around housing, but I think working with nonprofit organizations to be able to house their services is a real tangible way of shifting uh, the way um, that property ownership happens in the city. I can also speak to issues around housing, right, and kind of thinking through processes in neighborhoods that are getting rezoned in New York City and working with, again, nonprofit organizations, Make the Road being one of them, but not the only organization we work with on that end, as well as residents, both those that are engaged with their community boards and those that are not um, engaged with any sort of organization to try to identify and kind of talk through what's the best option, thinking about the current policies and tools that exist in the city and highlighting the potential of it, but then also being real straight about the limit. How do you go about finding clients? Emiliano and I hear from a lot of young designers who would love to get involved and to do the sort of work that you just described. And they wonder, you know, how do I get in touch? How do I find that nonprofit that's in need of my services? How has Hester Street approached that problem? How do you find your clients? As I, as I said with this, non, with this uh, Make the Road example, with this development project, we've had relationships with organizations and continue to grow our network um, by 
you know, offering the services that we do that are, you know, kind of outside of the development scope. So for example, we have worked with uh, nonprofits to offer them technical assistance on community based planning processes or on finding some data, make tabulating census data that looks hideous and making a story that is digestible and that allows those organizations and their residents to make informed decisions about their campaigns and what steps, you know, what is it that they want to advocate for at the, at the city level or at their, at their neighborhood level. And so it's through the history of, you know, kind of working in partnership and not, not for, but with community-based organizations and residents that we have become, not, I wouldn't say a household name, but that we've, that, that folks have gained our trust. And it is, in that trust that, you know, organizations talk to each other. And so not long after we started working with Make the Road on uh, developing their community center, Cypress Hills, you know, like their child care corporation approached us uh, with a similar interest in Cypress Hills looking for a child care center. And so that's also something that, that we are in the process of, of developing with them. And what is the Cypress Hills project? So the Cypress Hills Project is, again, they're a local organiza- local nonprofit organization. Um, they have two legs, one that's on community economic development. Um, the current Hester Street executive director worked there for many, many years, developing amazing affordable housing development opportunities. And then they also have a child care leg. And so they offer you know early education and child care services to low-income families in Cypress Hills. And so they they also are looking for um, a facility to expand their childcare services. So we again did the same kind of process, both in engaging their staff as well as the families that use those services to identify their needs, and then also do on the ground research about what sites are available, who owns them, what are the best owner you know landlords to broker deals with, who should we avoid, and we found a space for them clients or partners, as we prefer to call them, come our way through a variety of ways, primarily through word of mouth from other organizations that we work with. And it's through this word of mouth that now more, more recently, we've started to also expand um, our services beyond just nonprofit organizations, but have also been working with city agencies, especially when it's a project that we see there's a value added by having us who are experts in participatory planning and community-based design and making sure that, you know, folks that are traditionally or not invited to be engaged in planning practices are at the forefront. When we see that we can make that impact and we've accepted these partnerships with city agencies, I'll be honest and say that those are definitely a lot more challenging. What is really interesting and what you have been ex- explaining is how you became a mediator between, you know, helping people to articulate their voice and designers that come in with a specific proposal. In all this uh, negotiation, it's fascinating that then you're bringing in also and uh, d- developing a conversation directly with authorities. Is this scaling up uh, the way you work? Because then you're going to be di- directly uh, somehow you know, working with people with which your clients usually that are, you know, the citizens of a neighborhood usually should be negotiating specific rights. So is there a conflict of interest there? That's a great question. I I don't see it as a conflict of interest. And I think that we are very clear with city agencies um, that we enter into contracts with, you know, that we are not the traditional private firm. I think often when a city contracts, say a community engagement firm or an architecture firm or a design firm, 
often these partnerships, basically you're rendering some services and we will do what, what it takes to make you happy. For us, the, the end goal is always to ensure that residents are the folks whose interests are at the forefront, right? And so that means that we have to be very clear with agencies that we will, as much as possible, influence them to to see that and to understand that, and and that we don't think that we are selling ourselves over to the city agencies. Um, I think our mission is very clear for us that even as we become mediators between these two groups of people, that the most important folks even if you know the check is is coming from a city agency, these are all public monies. And so really the way that I personally understand this, it's the residents' monies, right? It's the taxpayers, it's the, the general public who's really paying for our work. And so for me, it, it's about making sure that this process of the project or the research or whatever it is that we're working on is benefiting them and makes sense to them and that it absolutely includes them and their voices. We hope you're enjoying this interview with Zella Ramirez of the Hester Street Collaborative, but we've got to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to be discussing housing, preservation, and the power of the people in East Harlem. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Social Design Insights. Welcome back to Social Design Insights. We hope you have enjoyed the conversation so far. Eric and I are carrying on our talk with Isela Ramirez, Senior Project Manager of Hester Street Collaborative in New York City. After introducing their approach and methodology, we will be looking at how to stimulate just policies and introduce how local knowledge is crafting Hester Street's latest projects. Isela, before the break, you mentioned that there was a sort of expansion in the last couple of years as you've branched out into uh, other boroughs and other cities. Have you found that the policy you mentioned, that of respect between city agencies and the public, is generally holding true as you move into other contexts? Although, theoretically, yes, uh, city agencies that use public monies should have the same interest, right, of the people that they're supposed to be serving. Um, and, and you know, we're talking about city planning, we're talking about economic development, corporate, you know, corporation, which is quasi-city agency, we're talking about the health department. But I don't think that really, historically, if we look at the policies, if we look at zonings and rezonings, previous outcomes. It doesn't actually ring true that policies translate into achieving the same interest as people in their communities, right? That they want to have affordable housing, that they want to have equitable uh, access to food and, and clean air and education services and community assets, right? All those things, in fact, don't equal the same, right? They don't actually translate into um, having the same interest. One, I wanted to clarify that. Um, And I I think that as we grow, that the role as a facilitator and as a mediator becomes much more delicate and needs to be treated, you know, with the utmost uh, intent. um, And we need to be cautious about what we say, how we say it, and, and ensure that uh, folks are hearing each other, right? Because I think, as we said, even though theoretically government should be serving the people, I think it's easy for government agencies to lose touch of 
the particularities of a, of, of a neighborhood. And when they're thinking about the people, they're thinking about New York City as a whole. So when the mayor is thinking about, you know, increasing the units of affordable housing, um, he's thinking about his entire city and folks at the regional level see that as, as a gain and a benefit. But if you're living in a community like Bushwick that is, or East Harlem as a, you know, an example that's kind of happening right this second and, and city planning is proposing to dramatically upzone some of the corridors and changing the character of, of your neighborhood and, you know, essentially pushing for an influx of residents. And so that, you know, what does that mean for the transportation system and, and the parking and the types of stores that are available? And so, you know, I think that it's our job to make sure that city agencies kind of get grounded, right, in the particular neighborhoods that they are working on and really hear what residents have to say. And so that means taking them out of the typical dialogue, which is, you know, public hearings or scoping sessions where you have a very dry presentation and they're speaking in long planning and design language. And then residents get very limited, you know, three minute segments behind the podium and taking them out of that and bringing them into a table where where the city planner stops being the city planner and just becomes Jared, right? I really uh, see that what you're saying is really fundamental because it is true that uh, it's, I mean, the democratic process doesn't really give the right exposure to people's uh, ideas, especially when it's involved uh, planning. But I would go back to something you said uh, in this uh, uh, last uh, answer, uh, specifically in the project of East Harlem, just because I know that in East Harlem you did this amazing neighborhood plan, which was a thorough understanding of what were the issues that the neighborhood was facing and what would be, you know, possible uh, new ideas on, on how mm-hmm. to, or even recommendations on how to redevelop. So maybe looking at specifically this project, what, what were the, the main issues that the people were perceiving? And through the project, what were the ones that you thought were really the main issues? The East Harlem Neighborhood Plan is a super comprehensive plan that lists all the the, the desires of, of residents and organizations that, are, that were active participants. And so the stuff, you know, the, the, the work that I'm personally working on right now, where city agencies are in a much more formal way, part of the process, right, where we are working with city planning and housing preservation and development on a constant basis and the city council members of, of, of those two districts in Bushwick. There isn't anything in writing that says, you know, we will take what you say and run with it. But but there are many more checkpoints, right? We've kind of learned from the tragedy in East Harlem to ensure that there isn't a repeat um, in Bushwick. And I think that Of course, in this world, there are no guarantees, but I think to do the work that we do, you have to really at heart believe in the power of people and and the power of of pressure to be able to shift the way that these processes work. We are working to really have a, a, a long lasting impact on the way that planning happens and to inform and to better the way that community engaged design actually takes place across the city and, and across the, the region. Partly we, we expect that that within one or two neighborhoods or one or two planning processes that we're not going to resolve that issue, right? That these systemic issues across uh, planning processes are not going to go away with one round or two rounds of planning processes, but that with each 
process that neighborhoods and organizations like ours and organizations working to build power in these neighborhoods are getting smarter and smarter, you know, that we keep hammering until city planning and other city agencies really open their ears and their minds to what is really most important and most valuable to the communities whose work they're they're impacting on a very real and, and daily basis. I think that's really the the real challenge. I mean, planning is such a complex uh, discipline that has to uh, take uh, in consideration so many elements in in all the urban uh, ecology. And I think that organizations like yours that are really giving people a, a, a right weight in giving their voice are really nowadays more and more uh, fundamental because, of course, uh, there's a very strong uh, power of... Uh, of corporations, of builders that just uh, see the city as a terrain for maximizing profit. And the people, as we see in uh, really fast transforming neighborhoods as Bushwick or, or Harlem, are becoming less and less relevant. So without this necessary uh, process of bringing ideas together and fighting for these uh, ideas to come through, I think our cities will just doomed to be uh, progressively becoming worse places. Absolutely. I mean, I think the work is never over. Um, and I knew that in my days as an organizer in LA, and I and I continue to to see that here um, and in this different role that I have now. Thank you very much, Isella, for taking the time uh, to explaining uh, how Hester Street uh, Collaborative actually uh, functions, because I really think it's a uh, it's uh, it's a valuable example that will surely be taken in in other U.S. city. And it's really interesting to see how over the past uh, five years you also have been expanding in other cities all over the country. So it's really showing the necessity that this kind of advocacy is made in, in U.S. cities and, you know, and possibly also in cities in other countries. No, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and I know that the, the experience and the practice of Hester Street and, and how you guys are confronting these sorts of problems is going to be very valuable for, for all of our listeners. So thank you. You've been listening to Social Design Insights with Eric Kessel and Emiliano Gandolfi. We'd like to thank our guests of the week, Isela Ramirez of the Hester Street Collaborative, for joining us in breaking down the challenges and aspirations of their work. For those of you in New York, they're on the Lower East Side, but their work is everywhere, and you've probably walked right past it. You can learn more about the Hester Street Collaborative on our website at currystonedesignprize.com. There you'll find galleries of their projects, narrative histories, and links to further your research. Social Design Insights is an initiative of the Currystone Design Prize and the Currystone Foundation. If you haven't already, please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for all the latest news on social impact design.